Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From Equity Mates Media, this is The Dive. It's finals weekend at Wimbledon, the most prestigious event on the professional tennis calendar. The stunning lawns, all-white dress code, royal family in attendance, and abundance of history makes it one of the most watched sporting events in the world. In fact, membership of the Wimbledon Club is so prestigious that you actually have a better chance to become a member by winning the tournament than you do being on the waitlist. But the sheen of Wimbledon is not the same for all. Behind the glitz and the glamour, there are professional players struggling to make a living, and the business of professional tennis is fundamentally flawed. It's Friday the 8th of July, and today I want to know, how well does it pay to be a professional tennis player? To do this, I'm joined by my colleague and sports fanatic of The Office, Darcy Cordell. Darcy, welcome to The Dive. Thank you, Sasha. Been a few late nights this week watching the Wimbledon finals. So who's your prediction? Who's going to win? Well, Rafael Nadal has just pulled out of the semi-final against Nick Kyrgios. Fortunately, as, as you can imagine, if I am here because I have to... Uh, to pull out from the tournament now. So, Kyrgios into the final. I think Djokovic might win. And in the women's, I'm picking Ons Jabeur. She's looking in good form. Well, you've heard it here first. And Darcy, you've got it on record now. So, people will be able to say he said it if, if it comes <laughs> true. All right. First of all, set the scene for me. I follow tennis every now and then, but really I outsource the information of my family members who keep me up to speed. So where does tennis actually sit in the order of global popularity for sports? Tennis is pretty widely regarded as the fourth most popular sport in the world. It has a global fan base of over a billion people. To give that some context, football or soccer is the clear number one with about four billion fans. And then we've got cricket, in second and hockey in third. Kind of surprising to me. Can I clarify that's ice hockey, right? Both field and ice hockey combined, so maybe a little skewed there. But yeah, we've got a lot of people in the subcontinent with uh, massive hockey fans and then, of course, North America, Canada. But there are a lot of fans like you, Sasha. Most would watch a few games of the Grand Slams or major events rather than following every game. A dream comes true. Australia's Ash Barty is Wimbledon champion. I mean, you'd have to have a lot of spare time and really love tennis to watch every game of a tournament. I used to work with a couple of colleagues at both Wimbledon and the Aussie Open and they would just use their holiday and their annual leave to go and just sit there and even they would miss some games because, of course, they run for about two weeks and there's hundreds of matches. So I assume that as the fourth most watched sport, there's got to be some correlation with their pay. Are they the fourth highest paid as well? Close, but not quite. On average, tennis players receive the eighth highest average pay of all sports, but the superstars of tennis are among the best paid athletes anywhere. So of the top highest paid athletes in the world last year, Roger Federer was the only tennis player in the top 10. He made just a lazy 90 million. Okay. But a side note, only $30,000 of that was actually from prize money from winning matches. 
He's been injured, but he gets a lot of his money from endorsements outside of tennis. Can I take that for you, Mr. Federer? No, thanks. I got it. I mean, I'm one of the people who went out and bought a pair of his shoes, so that money's got to go somewhere. His shoe brand on, they're actually listed on the New York Stock Exchange, so Roger's got plenty of other income coming in. But on the other highest paid athletes, Conor McGregor was the top paid of those athletes last year. He made $180 million. Again, a bit of an anomaly because he sold his whiskey company. And the second and third highest paid athletes were Leo Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, both football or soccer players. That's the very top end, Sasha. On average, professional tennis players are the eighth highest paid athletes. But perhaps more than most sports, there's a really wide range of outcomes within the tennis salaries. That doesn't surprise me because it makes sense that individual sports where the sole individual is responsible for the performance as opposed to a team where there's a range of variables. So it must result in a bigger range of outcomes. Alec told me off mic that golf is another one where the best players become multimillionaires and then the also-rans are getting part-time jobs to subsidise their playing. So let's dig in here how big is the pay discrepancy in tennis we'll start with what it costs to be a professional tennis player and then talk about how much they make it's not cheap to travel around the globe as a tennis player you've got to pay your team bring them around the world with you and any prize money and sponsorship you make needs to cover those costs first before you can pay yourself so you're kind of like a little small business that's on the road yeah literally so you need to make pretty much over $100,000 a year to make a profit as a professional tennis player. When I've asked players, you know, how much money do you have to earn to make it? And most of them come up with 100 to 150,000. That's a lot of money. At the moment, the current pie, let me put it that way, you know, the total revenue generated by the tennis professional sport and what we distribute in price money doesn't allow for the second tier to have players that can make a living and sustain the cost. So players describe investing in a tennis career essentially as a gamble, a bet that travelling to these far-off tournaments or hiring an expensive coach will eventually pay off and produce enough prize money to offset those costs. I I actually figured out as well I spend about £12,000 a year on on stringing and rackets. So, you know, at the end of the day, this sport is is incredibly expensive at at the higher levels. I mean, it makes sense using that small business analogy. That's what it's like starting a small business. You're putting money in in the assumption that there's going to be a return. But it's all a bit of calculated risk, isn't it? Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. So this takes us to how much tennis players actually make. I'll give you some examples of the gap from the top to the bottom. We'll start with Serena Williams, the highest paid female athlete in history. Hello, AD. Welcome to my home. Come on in. She's made 94 million US dollars in career prize money. That's just prize money. That's not counting her endorsements. That's right. We've got a long list of other endorsements for Serena. She's got a bunch of investments. She even has a stake in the Miami Dolphins American football team and is an advisor at an NFT company. So she's got plenty going on. She doesn't need to worry about the costs of a coach and, you know, getting around the world for her tournaments. Well, let's look at the male side then. You mentioned Roger Federer before. Can you give me some details about him? So Roger's made $130 million in career prize money. Again, very handy amount. And like Serena, Roger has other interests as well. One of those we spoke about on apparel. So it's not, it's, it's not the tiny shoebox. It's a big one. We went big, huh? Like, <laughs> let's see. His clothing brand. And he's also sponsored by Uniqlo on a 10-year, $300 million deal. So they're just two of the top earning players in history. 
The top five professional tennis players in the world make about $8 million a year. The players rank from 50 to 100. They make an average yearly salary of $510,000. And you said just before that to break even, a tennis player has to earn over 100000 So it's still a lot in terms of annual salaries, but it's not the huge sums that we glamorize it to be. Yeah, that's right. But if you're in the top 100, Sasha, you're making a profit. You're comfortably getting around the world and playing in these tournaments. But if you're outside the top 100, you're really struggling to make ends meet and to travel on the tour. The players ranked from 500 to 1,000. They average just $7,000 a year from prize money. There's no way that's paying for you to get around the world for these tournaments. Put another way, if you're a top five player, you make as much in prize money as the CEO of Chipotle gets paid. If you're between 100 and 150, your prize money is probably equivalent to a high paid doctor or lawyer salary. If you're between 350 and 400, your prize money is maybe a substitute teacher's salary. But if you're below 600 ranking, your prize money is likely lower than minimum wage. So these players would need to pick up a part-time job or really hustle for sponsorship. So what I'm hearing you say is that if you're outside the top 100 players in the world, which is a pretty incredible achievement, you're struggling to make ends meet. And the carrot of the prize money that you receive for cracking that top 100 is so attractive. So let's leave the individual players to the side and in a moment, let's talk more about the business side of tennis. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to The Dive. Today, we're talking about the business of tennis. And I'm joined by my colleague, Darcy Cordell, who is the uh, sports correspondent here because I'm definitely not being able to pick up the slack. So you've told me about what it takes to be successful in tennis as a player financially. But I want to know more about the business side of the sport as a whole. As the fourth most popular sport in the world, does that translate to huge revenue and profits? Don't get me wrong, Sasha. There's plenty of money in tennis. But relative to its viewership, it's a bit of an underachiever. Like most sports, the majority of money from tennis is generated through TV rights. But tennis accounts for just 1% of the total value of global sports, TV and media rights, according to a report by Sport Business. That's a smaller share than golf, hockey or cricket. 21% of people surveyed in a YouGov study said they were a soccer fan. And soccer's global media rights is worth about $20 billion a year. In the same survey, 15% of people said they were a tennis fan. But guess the value of tennis's global media rights, Sasha? Probably half, quarter of that. Less than a billion dollars. So on a similar level of fans, soccer's making $20 billion and tennis less than a billion. 
I know because you say billions and it's hard to lose perspective, but you know, when, when you compare and contrast like that, you realize that they are, um, as you said, the underdog. So why are they so small? So there are really seven different stakeholders within tennis. The ITF uh, looks after the junior up to the professional ranks and beyond that. Uh, you have the men's tour, the ATP, the women's tour, the WTA, and then you have the four Grand Slam events. And those seven stakeholders together work on promoting and developing the sport around the world. A lot of commentators point to the fragmented nature of the tennis ecosystem, I guess. Between the Grand Slams, the ATP, the WTA and the ITF, there are plenty of cooks in the kitchen. It means that viewers have a fragmented experience. In America, ESPN has the broadcast rights to three of the Grand Slams, Wimbledon, the US Open and the Australian Open, but NBC has the rights to the French Open. And these are all individual deals. ESPN's deal for Wimbledon lasts until 2035, but their deal for the US Open expires in just a few years. So from what you're saying, negotiating each tournament individually is reducing the overall bargaining power for the sport. Yeah, that's right. But that alone isn't a sufficient explanation. In football or soccer, there are also plenty of governing bodies and they all have certain broadcast rights too. Take an English football club, there's FIFA, UEFA, the Premier League, the club itself, these are all different stakeholders. To some extent with tennis, it's just a supply and demand problem. The demand for soccer rights or cricket rights creates a bidding war between all these stakeholders, but tennis doesn't quite do this in the same way. The way you're talking though, it sounds like tennis is destitute, you know, it's this poor forgotten cousin, but ESPN's deal for the US Open is worth $70 million a year. There's plenty of money in tennis. You can't be telling me that they're just stuffing it up. Yeah, you're right, Sasha. We need to have some perspective. It's a it's a massive sport. We're watching Wimbledon at the moment, so we'll use that as an example. Last year, the All England Lawn Tennis Club, which hosts Wimbledon, brought in £288 million, or about $360 million US dollars in revenue. And of that, they reported a profit of £43 million, or $54 million. Pretty solid business. The winners of Wimbledon singles this year, so my prediction, Novak Djokovic, he'll win £2 million and same with Ons Jabeur if she wins, she'll also win £2 million or $2.5 million US dollars. But for those who get knocked out in the first round, they still win £50,000. So there's plenty of money. Yeah, well, we'll find out who wins that money this weekend, won't we, Darcy? So, so far we've discussed TV rights, sponsorship and prize money. But tennis is doing some really interesting things to increase revenue and bring in more money and get more attention. And I'm thinking of those NFTs that the Australian Open introduced uh, in January of this year. Did you hear about that? It was kind of a natural progression for us to to move into the next space, which we decided was the metaverse. I did. I found this fascinating. So Tennis Australia made about $2 million from the sales of these NFTs. Basically, they created non-fungible tokens of tennis shots that were happening within the tournament. So, for example, Rafael Nadal would hit an amazing forehand and they'd turn that into an NFT. They were very popular, especially with the younger generation. Yeah, and from what I understood, and I might be getting this wrong, it was like your NFT was assigned a particular part of the court and if the ball landed on that court, then you would get a physical ball as well. It just seemed like they were making adding this element of fun to NFTs at the same time. It, I definitely wanted to buy one and I've never wanted to buy an NFT before. I thought it was a great project, Sasha, and I think they'll probably bring this back next year and I can see it happening around the world too. They were sold at a pretty affordable price 
And whether or not they're a good investment, who knows, but they certainly had the popularity. Um, I've also become a convert. I mean, it's well documented on this podcast. I've become a convert to Formula One after watching Drive to Survive on Netflix. And I know there's other sports docos that I haven't watched, like Amazon's All or Nothing, that's having a similar effect for different sports. Is there potentially a tennis equivalent in the works? There is, Sasha. I'll come to that in a minute. But most of us have seen the success of Drive to Survive following the Formula One. I'll give you some numbers on that. In 2019, ESPN paid $5 million a year for the American rights to the Formula One. But since Drive to Survive has been released on Netflix, ESPN is now paying $75 million a year for the same rights. A huge boost. A lot of that can be contributed to this so-called Netflix effect from Drive to Survive. And a lot of other sports have obviously taken notice of this and they're trying to emulate the success. Netflix is planning to release a similar style of docuseries following the Tennis World Tour or the four major Grand Slams. And I'm pretty keen to watch it, to be honest. I'm definitely going to watch it. And especially if we get to follow some of those lesser known players and see the day-to-day reality of just how gruelling and how intense it is to be a professional athlete at that level. Well, I think that's it for today's edition of The Dive. If there's a story you want us to talk about, then contact us at thedive at equitymates.com or follow us on any of the social media channels. All those links are in the show notes below. Remember to give us a five-star rating, please, and subscribe so that every time there's a new episode, it's right there in your feed the moment it drops. Thank you so much for joining me today, Darcy. Thanks for having me, Sasha. Let's see if my predictions come off. Yes, let's see. We'll pick it up next week. Until next time. The Dive is a product of Equity Mates Media. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of The Dive acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The hosts of The Dive are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.